This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. There are many parts of the driving experience that we would all like to change. One of them is a challenge most of us has faced, a long commute followed by a hunt for a parking spot. But what if you could streamline that process? Well, luckily, there's an app for that. Jonathan Sadow is the co-founder and chief growth officer of Scoop, and he's on a mission to make that time wasted in the car more valuable for you. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Jonathan discusses why Scoop is the right tool for those looking to get time back. And he also talks about the importance of trusting what the data tells you as you start to market in a new category. Enjoy this episode. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends. And today we are joined by special guest, John, how are you? I'm doing great, Ian. Thanks for, for having me. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, great to have you on the show. Um, we are really excited to talk about Scoop and what you're building and obviously get into your background. So let's get started. How did you get into marketing in the first place? The real answer is by accident. And in fact, I'm not sure if, if others would actually say I got into marketing uh, as much as sort of uh, you know, slipped and fell and ended up in a role where marketing was something I, I needed to learn and, and be responsible for. I had started my career at Google, actually on the sales and advertising account management side, very quickly realized I actually wanted to be in product, as I think a lot of people do when they get out to the Valley. Taught myself how to code, switched teams at Google, got closer to the product team, became a product manager. And then it wasn't until I left to start Scoop and we were starting to build out the team that marketing kind of became part of the, the organization that I, that I owned. And convinced the buddy of mine from Google to come and lead our marketing effort for a while and, and work for me. And, you know, lo and behold, five and a half years later, marketing is, is still something that I'm responsible for and have come to really love and, and appreciate as part of a, a core driver of what we do at Scoop. Well, I think it's such a classic uh, technology tale now where you have such a clear connection between product and marketing that, you know, had really never been present before this. I mean, there's no way that someone who could see the entire onboarding process of every single customer that you have, you know, like product can do with technology companies. And so marrying that with growth is more common now than ever. Totally. I, I couldn't agree more. And in a funny way, that's actually why you know, we think about this function now at Scoop as a growth function and not to get too philosophical, but so much of this to us it's about what it means to be egalitarian. There, I mean, there's so much overlap between marketing and product, product and analytics, marketing and analytics and design, and you can keep going that over time, it actually becomes incredibly important to actually be able to traverse specific function to specific function and actually start to treat them as equals and overlapping disciplines. And you can't really separate them out. And actually, if you show me a company that tries too hard to do that, that's probably a flag to me immediately about the synergies between things like product and marketing. So flash forward to today, tell us a little bit about Scoop for our listeners who don't know. Yeah, so Scoop is the country's largest carpooling and commuting platform for companies and especially major enterprises. We work with companies to offer commute solutions that are driven, sort of anchored in a carpooling first mode option to get their people back and forth to work, which 
you know, three months ago was a top of mind thing. And soon again, in the future, will be a top of mind thing again, you know, and, and quick, quick story on Scoop is that it, it really was the reaction or solution to a very personal problem for me and my brother, Rob, who's actually our CEO and my co-founder. We had spent uh, in high school, we were commuting about 25 miles each way together in a carpool just to get to our high school. And it had sort of this lasting imprint, you know, 250 miles a week when you're 16, 17, is a lot of time to spend in a car. You know, I, I, I often joke, I think that the way the Valley would normally think about this kind of story is that I would say that I knew at 16, I needed to solve the world's traffic and congestion problems. And that is not true. I just knew that being in the car that much just wasn't that fun. And then I forgot about it. I went to school in a different city in DC and didn't have a car, didn't think about the commute. And then lo and behold, we, we both ended up back or vended out out here in the back Bay Area about a decade later and the commute kind of hit us like a ton of bricks and we immediately felt like there was something that needed to happen to be able to unlock that for, for people so that they could improve their, their daily experiences getting to work. And so talk about what it means to be a chief growth officer. What, how, does, how is marketing in your org? Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably worth telling the evolution. You know, I've, I've only officially been a chief growth officer since earlier this year. And before that was always a chief product officer. And it kind of harkens back to something you said earlier around marketing and, and product. You know, really what happened is as a co-founder, you kind of have this weird nebulous role where I was kind of co-founder, but also chief product officer as the company grew. And, you know, marketing rolled into me, product management rolled into me, eventually UX and analytics and, and other functions. And what we realized over time is, is that as the company was growing, we were sort of adding more growth-oriented functions under this product umbrella, which was really a misnomer. And so this year is when we finally said, hey, you know what? This isn't really a product org anymore. It's a growth org where these functions come together and aggregate and overlap in order to drive the growth mechanism of our company and our marketplace. And so we actually went through that formal transition. And so in a funny way, it was you know, five years ago, hey, you know, David Clavins, my buddy from Google, who was our first marketer all the way through our VP of marketing for, for a while, come work with me. Uh, and then sort of just got stuck in that org structure and then it grew and it worked. And then all of a sudden now, you know, we're a big growth org. And so like, where does, you know, product stop and growth begin? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think, you know, in reality, you know, my, my philosophy on, on how growth gets defined and what a growth org actually means is, I actually think the, the most important part of a growth org is the dynamism of how the levers of marketing versus products versus operations versus UX, which is all part of our growth org, how those notes get played louder or quieter from time to time, depending on what the company needs, right? I mean, you know, one of the things I very much ascribe to is that most of the time, your most valuable growth lever in a software or tech-related business is just to increase product market fit. If that's the case, product becomes the center of the growth apparatus, and you're thinking about marketing as an amplification of product improvements or product market fit seeking and analytics as product market fit discovery. But that can be different. Sometimes when you have great product market fit, growth actually comes from more what we would call traditional growth levers, paid advertising campaigns or, uh, or other types of promotions or growth hacking, if you will, or ways to drive lead generation. And so for us, it ebbs and flows at times. And the way I think about it is different parts of the growth org take turns getting to sort of be the center of the dance circle. And for Scoop, it's, it's gone back and forth. Right now, I would say we're very much at a, at a product in the middle kind of growth stage. And like, what types of, of marketers do you have on your team? Is it, do you have a large, you know, digital team? Do you have an ads team? Like, what's the breakup? Yeah, so we, you know, Scoop, to get a little more context on Scoop, 
you know, we have a B2B side of our business and then sort of a B2B to C or marketplace side, right? So the way Scoop works is our customers are employers. We work with companies to buy our software offering our platform and then sort of work together with them to scale it out to their employees. It's really a B2E business if you're, you know, if you're fond of that terminology. But at the same time, once an employee joins our platform, they become part of the Scoop network and they have a relationship with Scoop, the company itself. So then we have riders and drivers who are matching up together to commute. We're teaching them about the products. We're engaging with them. We're, waiting, we're running referral programs. And so when you look at our marketing team, which is pretty lean today, what we're actually doing is trying to just make this sort of core bets in different parts of the B2B and B2C. So in that context, you know, we have a demand gen you know, part of our team. We've got mostly what we call product marketers. So we have someone who's particularly focused on the marketplace and the commuter product. Someone who's particularly focused on the customer, the customer sale, the customer product positioning. And then our marketing team at Scoop also includes comms and content. And so that kind of rounds out our team where content actually plays a really big part for us because it's kind of that pivot point between the, the B2C and B2B side where most of our content can have that kind of dual value. We don't have a lot of investment in advertising, actually. Because of our, our model and because we work with such big companies, we're in much more sort of ABM roll up the sleeves kind of demand gen shop. And we haven't done a lot of digital at scale, although we have tried it at different times and not found that it's been a great fit for our business, to be honest. Yeah, it's so funny how, you know, in the world of these kind of, you know, the B2B to C type companies where you have this massive amount of people, these employees, whether it's like, you know, companies who support, you know, employees or like HR company or whatever it is, that you have this go-to-market motion where you need all of the employees to be bought in on the solution, but you need a handful of decision makers to actually close the deal. And those two things, you know, from a top-down approach or, you know, impacting that group sideways is critical. Do you think about like those two groups as like how you, you know, shape one and but sell to the other? Totally. And 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 in many ways we our product strategy, our North Star is governed by, at this point in our maturity, so much of what we're trying to build, the best parts of what we build are things that actually both make our customer, the buyer happy, but augment the core day-to-day experience for the commuter. Now, what we're lucky about is that in HR products in particular, like ours, and we are sort of an HR employee experience product, good HR leaders, their number one buying criteria is the happiness and experience of their employees. And so building things for the employee experience actually then makes our buyer happy. But it, it has, you know, it's, it's been a challenge. We, we've had a lot of fragmentation in the way that we think about where should we focus? Are we trying to tell the story better to the customer, to the user? I and mean, we're going through a website redesign right now where we're finally going to sort of turn the corner where takescoop.com changes from really a commuter app first focus to a B2B sort of lead gen focus. And that's, you know, five years of, company evolution. And so there's a lot involved here. And I think for B2B2C businesses, the launch implementation sort of integration phase is really where you make your money. And it's been one of the areas we've spent the most energy trying to perfect and and develop because signing a contract is only as good as the number of employees who are actually going to use your your software. Yeah. And, you know, when you're talking about, you know, that post-sale process, if, you know, obviously the top of the funnel is important and, and bringing people through or, you know, in, in ABM parlance, you know, how you're engaging those folks. 
But at the end of the day, you still have this massive post-sale movement of implementation, which needs a lot of marketing, right? Like it needs a lot of growth. There's a lot of growth touches. I'm curious, how do you look at that post-sale marketing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great topic to sort of explore further. It has a lot of layers. I think Scoop is maybe one of the most you know, interesting case studies here because if you want to, if you want to layer on the complexity, we're a B2C, a B2B2C business, but we also are a marketplace. So not only do we have to go figure out how to create adoption and buzz and virality internally, but we then have to do that in a way that balances not only a local marketplace at that employer, but the broader surrounding marketplace of the other employers in the area that are also signed off with Scoop. So all that is to say, you've got a lot of dimensions here. You know, we've had a lot of evolutions in the way we think about what we call our go-to-market or our launch. And I'll tell you some interesting, you know, some quick pieces that we can, we can take it one step at a time. But, you know, we've often thought about it as a really close partnership between operations, what we call market operations in the launch team and marketing, where we were always sort of trying to build this model where you have a decentralized launch team that actually is much more operational. And, and I'm talking about like, when can we come to your office? Can we set up a table? How can we get on site? Can we get permissions? What's our hand-to-hand combat, so to speak, approach with a more centralized marketing mentality of, okay, we need a central marketing team to think about the positioning and the materials and the promotions and actually the messaging of what we want to talk to customers about. And marrying those two together is fun, but really hard. And then if you want to go deeper, I can tell you about how all of that was built around an on-the-ground presence, right? Because we found that that was actually the most effective way to actually talk about commuting with employees. And now uh, we're going to wipe that off the playbook, frankly, in the post-corona world. Because getting on the ground like that isn't a thing anymore. Well, and then, yeah, the new normal changes pretty rapidly and it, it'll, it'll change rapidly back. I mean, I think that part of the thing, you know, for commuting and for all these sort of things, like you see when employers require their folks to go certain places, like you will obviously have commute. And we know that we all need to commute more in terms of in each other's car. We need to carpool with people more. We need to share rides together. We need to do those things because it makes the most sense for our environment and it makes the most sense for our fellow passengers. The hard part is we drive to deadlines, you know, those three minutes here, those four minutes there that are so critical because we want to spend time with our families, you know, we want to avoid that stuff. But on the other side, now we have, you know, mobile phones in our pockets and we can do a lot of the work uh, or certain types of work or learning or listening to podcasts or whatever while we're doing that. I'm curious, like, what do you see from employee behavior, maybe pre-COVID and what are you looking for for the future? Yeah, I think, I think you hit a lot of the, the, the keynotes there, right? I mean, I think, you know, in a pre-COVID environment, so much of what we're focused on is bringing out the opportunity for this amount of time that people spend commuting to become something that actually has real upside and power. We talk about it as, as creating, creating a meaningful commute and giving a lot of choice back to the commuter. And what we learned about with Scoop, and this is a good positioning story, is you know, we obviously understood that the front-end things that sold to users were, hey, you save a little bit of time, you might save a little bit of money, you won't have to have a car, you won't have to take transit, whatever that sort of tangible value proposition was. But in reality, what we found is a couple trips in, the vast majority of people wanted to keep carpooling because they really enjoyed the interpersonal experience. They loved meeting new people. I mean, we work with big companies, so they were meeting people in different departments, working on different projects, making friends. 
mean, we have everything from marriages to best friends to tennis partners to people who referred people to other jobs to internal team transfers, right? So really great serendipitous social interaction, which is really interesting when you think about how that's going to change in a current and future sort of work environment. Obviously, everyone home now is working from home. And one of the things that we're looking at is how do we actually become a huge part of the return to the workplace whenever that happens to re-engage the community and the social fabric of companies, right? When we're working from home, the data shows that people feel more disconnected. And so we've got an even more important role of kind of creating that serendipitous interaction at the same time addressing safety, right? And so if we're not careful, everyone will say, hey, I'll just drive alone. It's the safest way. I already own my car. And you'll see this really big regression from a commute behavior perspective if, we, if and when we go back to work. So that's kind of the stuff that's on our mind right now is how do we become a core part of returning to the workplace and re-engaging that, that work community and, instead of relationships and networking. So what are some of the challenges that you've seen with marketing to the HR employee experience group? Because it's something that as much as customer experience is, is changing rapidly with you know, the role of the, the CMO and the CRO and, and chief product officer kind of owning this customer experience, employee experience similarly is changing. There's the CIO, there's the CHRO, there's you know, all these people trying to make employees happy. So I'm curious, like how, how difficult is it to sell into that place? You know, it, it has certainly been a challenge. I think, you know, for us, we always thought about ourselves as category building, which is both exciting, but, but brings a challenge. And, and as a result, that's in large part because in our case, we're trying to create an investment category around the commute where unlike other category development, it's not really a new technology that they have to understand, right? Carpooling is not something people are unfamiliar with, like, I don't know, investing in augmented reality or something. It's more around a solution where historically there wasn't one, right? Where carpooling is known, we know that this area is ideal, but our spreadsheet doesn't work and our ride board doesn't work. And now there's actually a a technology-powered solution. So all that to say, we had a lot of re-education we had to do in the market you know, if I were to summarize how I think about the challenges or the things to work through when you're thinking about selling to HR, you know, three things come to mind for me. You know, the first is, I think, as you talked about, there's such an evolution and diversity in HR structures, right? The CHRO role, but also VPs of HR or benefits rolling into the finance role or other parts of the org. Buying power and decision-making is very inconsistent, right? It's not always clear who's making a purchasing decision, why they're making a purchasing decision. The relationship between HR and the CFO is critical, but it changes so much company to company, big to small. The second is we're just still very much in transition and the way that HR organizations think about employee engagement versus benefits versus sort of required investments. And what I mean by that is there's so much uh, visibility of some of the sort of sexy valley benefits that you saw from Google over the last 10 years and now every tech company that there's this sort of stigma against these unnecessary benefits that actually gets a little bit caught up in the sort of the more blue collar or boilerplate benefits that people really care about. And so you have organizations that don't have clear delineations of, is this a benefit that's sort of a discretionary investment? Or is this sort of a table stakes or a status quo, a financial decision, right? So when we're telling our story, we talk a lot about, we can quantify the expected reduction in turnover from the commute. Like we know a certain percentage of people will leave the company because of the commute. 
And if we can address that problem, they'll be able to reduce turnover costs. So this is a spreadsheet math kind of thing. This isn't a ping pong table kind of thing. And then the third thing that really comes up is, honestly, HR organizations, ownership and access to their own data has, it, it's limited and oftentimes getting, you know, doing roster analysis, doing geographic analysis, understanding the preferences of people, and especially the black hole that is existing commute data. That's been one of the more interesting discoveries for us is that it's hard for a large company to keep their arms around the, the makeup and the behavior of their own employees. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that, and that's part of the problem is like, so we were, we were talking about this and I can't remember if it was on, it was on marketing trends or just an internal meeting, but they say that there's two things that if you want to improve your happiness, like tomorrow are like, you know, tried and true methods that are guaranteed to improve your happiness. Number one is get a dog. And number two is reduce your commute. Yep. And I think it's like, it's so obvious to think about. And I think obviously, you know, people are saying like, oh, is this like the end of commuting and this end of all that stuff? And we can talk about that later. And I think it's clearly not going to be the place. People are going to change their behaviors, but they're not going to stop wanting to like meet people and see, you know, and be, yep. be in the same place as their fellow employees. But things will change, which I would imagine is a, is a net positive for companies like Scoop who are taking something that's already pretty complex and now will become even more complex and give people, you know, solutions that improve their work life. And I think that that's part of the thing. Like this is, as you said, uh, this is quantifiable and to show that. So could you kind of walk through like the pre-scoop versus post-scoop? Like what does that feel like for one of these enterprises and then how do you market that transformation? Yeah. First, I just, you know, credit to you. It's, it's a really good encapsulation, I think, of what we're trying to work through, both in terms of, you know, the work from home versus commute dynamic, which it sounds like we'll get to in a minute. But also just this making sense of complexity. I, I do think that's a big piece of this is how do we help companies sort out what actually is just going to get becoming increasingly complex? What we say is like mobility, like um, workforce mobility problem. You know, in terms of like pre and post implementation of Scoop and like, what do we see? What do we market from a case study perspective? It, you know, it takes a couple of different flavors and it ranges from the tangible to the intangible. You know, the tangible is sometimes that we're just there to solve a parking problem, right? And this goes back to the, just the core mobility mechanics where you got a company, you know, the story here is actually pretty interesting in that over the last decade and a half, and now this is going to change back. We went from, I think it was something like an average uh, square footage per person, you know, broadly speaking of like 250 square feet, down to as little as 75 to 100 if you're thinking about like a WeWork environment, where the average is about 125 or 150. And so you're talking about doubling the capacity of buildings, but nobody's adding parking for that. Like parking is still zoned as parking spaces per real estate square footage. And that's all sort of the technical way of saying, we got a lot more people going to the same building, but no parking. And so well, oftentimes we're just there to say, hey, guess what? We can put you know, X percent of your employees and cars together. We can track the hundreds or thousands of cars that we're taking out of the parking lot on a daily basis. And so the stories you hear, ironically, are stories like the CEO saying, hey, I don't have to drive around looking for a spot anymore. Or I don't have to park on the third deck. Or I don't have to, you know, we got one company that had people parking 15 minutes down the street because they couldn't fit in the structure and they were having to walk. They were feeling that change. You know, the intangible stuff is about the HR value. And, and that's where so much of it comes back to 
feeling less stressed out, feeling more connected. And, and as you kind of called out, it's just about employee well-being. So they can be more focused, more engaged, more connected to the company. And we see everything from direct correlation between scoop and retention expectations versus productivity, belief in the company, faith in management, all this stuff that comes from the idea that the commute stopped being this tax on your day and actually started becoming a net positive because of how you're interacting with other people and regaining some of that time. Well, and I think, you know, as you're talking to, to CEOs and, you know, senior board leaders, the number one thing that they always say is the problem is attracting and retaining talent, right? Like your people are the, your most important asset. And I think you're totally right from earlier that like there kind of became a backlash to like the, the Silicon Valley perks, which again became or came about because of the fact that these are extremely high margin products. And when you have high margin technology products, you can invest back in the people because of what they create scales to massive amounts. So those people inherently are more valuable to like keep and retain them because, you know, they're super talented. Yep. That's why they're doing that. You know, like extremely low margin companies don't have the ridiculous benefits that other places do. It's because their business model doesn't support that in most cases. Yep. So like, that's the reason why, like Google has the best perks because <laughs> that's why <laughs> they, they're the best product yes. on earth. Yes. But I think that one of the cool things about companies like Scoop or, you know, like we use JustWorks or, you know, places like Trinet or whatever it is, looking at solutions that, or like Collective Health and, and these sort of places yeah. that are all around the same thing about like, how do we make our employees happier, more engaged and take away the friction that it means to be an employee? and like. The most frustrating thing is, you know, obviously the commute. However, you know, if Ian feels that pain, you know, what am I going to do? You know, email someone in the, in the C-suite and say like, hey, I saw this thing scoop. We should check it out, right? Like, is that, is that noise going to actually make that big of a difference versus, you know, the CFO sitting there and saying like, hey, cost-benefit analysis how much money are we losing on a day-to-day -day basis by our employees riding around looking for parking spots? Like the hourly rate that we pay these executives is $500 an hour. We probably shouldn't have them drive around forever or anyone, not just executives, but anyone on the team. Yeah, I think, I think you're spot on. And I think that's, you know, if you were to have sat through like a scoop sales presentation uh, or look at some of our marketing materials three or four months ago, so much of it was about thinking about the macro level metrics and cost drivers of an HR organization, right? And it is all about recruitment and retention. You know, one of the things we joke about is that every candidate has a circle. There's their house and they draw a circle around that house and that circle or that shape that they draw is how far they're willing to go, right? In the Bay Area, you find me 100 people in San Francisco and what you'll find is you've got circles that range from just San Francisco proper some will go down to South San Francisco, some will go down to Palo Alto, some will go down to San Jose. And you could offer them a great job, but if it's outside their circle, they're not going there. Now, if they have a perspective that there's a way to commute where that time doesn't feel like a tax, right? All of a sudden, you've changed the makeup of it. And I think one of the important things for companies to learn about Scoop and even people to feel through the experience is, you know, time isn't just literal time. Time is also how it's spent, right? And one of the biggest things we find is the commute itself, the time isn't necessarily the problem. It's, it's what that time is, staring in traffic, listening to a podcast you didn't really want to listen to, not like this one that you're listening to right now. Sure, of course. <laughs> is maybe not considered 
good time spent, but a great conversation with a friend or learning about a new business unit or a chance for an extra couple of minutes of sleep is great. All that is to say, you know, the favorite thing I used to tell people when they asked me, well, people don't really want to commute. And, and I feel the same way about this, the work from home discussion is ask somebody if they'd rather work from home, if they could teleport. Yeah, it's a great point. I know that sounds silly, but be like, hey, guess what? You have a teleport in your living room. You can teleport into your office. Where are you working? You're working in your office with your other, and every, you know what everyone would say is both. And I think, you know, we can get into this conversation, but I think that's the reality we're moving to is let's optimize the commute so that nobody's just staring and sitting in traffic. And the number one way to do that, as you said, is put more people on less cars. Well, and I think, you know, we did this podcast called Future Cities and we talked to a bunch of folks and, you know, the number one problem with cities and, I, you know, you know, all this stuff is single person drivers that are going from A to B. Like that is the absolute number. It's the horrible for the environment. It's horrible for your psyche. You're like clinically more likely to be depressed if you're a single person commuter. I mean, there's like all these things that play into this and it means like non-happy employees. But from, you know, to go back to the marketing piece of this is like all of that stuff sounds great. But when the buyer is like, yeah, that would be awesome. But, you know, I got to, you know, convince someone that this is what we need to do, like a need to have versus a a nice to have. How do you look at, you know, some of your favorite campaigns and creating this category and evangelizing that this is a need to have thing? Yeah, it's a great point again. And it's, it's one of the bigger marketing challenges that we faced. And in many ways, it's because, you know, HR doesn't love annexing cost buckets. And what I mean by that is, by and large, the individual commute cost of a solo driver is taken on by the solo driver. And so in choosing to invest in Scoop, a company is saying, hey, we want to annex this cost bucket because we feel like investing in this area as a new bucket is actually worth it for us on the ROI side. And frankly, like that's a pretty sort of sophisticated way of thinking about investment structure uh, as an HR team or an HR buyer. You know, when I think about the campaigns or the, just the marketing work that we've done that's been most successful, I think in a funny way, you know, sometimes big numbers and data are your best asset from a marketing perspective. And it's not glitz and glam and design and beauty. And I will tell you that more than anything else, what we have found is being able to put not a lot, but a few big eye-popping numbers that really tangibleize kind of what we all know has had the biggest impact. And we had to sort of adjust our materials over time because we started with, let's get into detail, let's go through models, let's give you all the breakdown. And in reality, you know what they wanted to know? They wanted to know, average turnover rate is X, this is how much it must be costing you, bang, if you can unwind turnover by 20% through carpooling, you'll save a million bucks. And then, then HR was like, oh, cool, a million bucks, I can save a million bucks, let me tell finance that. And it was this interesting thing where our best marketing became actually zooming out quite a bit to a higher level number, staying out of the details, and using a little bit of data to cement what kind of we all know, which is that everything that a company needs is about investing and recruiting and retaining talent. And so with that message, where were you putting that? How are you positioning that? It was that like an outbound sales effort? Was that like a marketing campaign, like a paid campaign? How are you getting that out there? Yeah, so it's a good question. So what we did is actually is we actually, in sort of in the same vein, we really decided last year that we were going to be much more content oriented and especially content backed by data oriented. And what I mean by that is we ran a really large national study that we then analyzed, summarized, and published, which we called the State of the American Commute Report. And it was basically a look at 
what's going on in the commute market? How is that affecting core HR buckets like retention and recruitment? And how can we very basically quantify that into the cost profile of a customer? And so that came out of sort of, we used that as sort of an insights part of our marketing team and then turned into a publication, which then that fanned out across all of our marketing mechanisms. Like one of the companies, I, this is a sidestep here, but one of the companies I admire most in the world is Disney. And the reason why is Disney excels at being able to flip content through all of these different mediums, right? They make a movie, which becomes a theme park, which becomes toys, which becomes books, et cetera. And we really tried to take the same approach with how we thought about this content. So the State of the American Commute Report became a key download landing page experience from the demand gen um, side in terms of outreach. It became headlines that were included in parts of our SDR emails to prospects, helping them understand what the, the snippets were from this report. It became localized reports that were part of local campaigns that actually had more mixed media and event invites and webinars and things like that. It became our handout at events. It became uh, part of our core slides and materials. And so that was the biggest part of our marketing engine last year is thinking, hey, if we're building a category and we need to help HR tangibilize this problem in a way to quantify it back to the CFO, let's become the data. Like let's stop looking for benchmarks. Let's establish and create our own and then let that drive all of the content downstream through basically each of our different marketing channels and marketing outlets. And how much are you working with sales to like create, you know, copy and, and support assets? Like, is that more of a sales ops thing or is that more of a, a growth or a marketing function? So it's, it's ebbed and flowed. I'll be transparent with you. It's not always easy, right? I mean, it's where, where SDR, we, what we think of as sales development and outreach stops or starts and where marketing picks up and demand gen picks up is, is, a, is a moving target, right? It's different for every company. For us, I think the biggest thing we've tried to do is over-communicate and be less concerned about roles and responsibilities and much more concerned about alignment and harmony. I know that in some demand gen orgs, the, the copy of each email that an SDR sends out is written by demand gen. I know at our org, it isn't. And we let the, demand, the SDR team have a lot of flexibility in what content they're writing and testing and how they analyze results. And so in our case, it's really changes campaign to campaign. Sometimes they're demand gen driven and they're tied to an event or tied to something that demand gen wants to bring the SDR team into part of the execution. And sometimes we're throwing content or data over to the, the sales development team and they're building their own plan of attack and trying to think through different testing and work that they can do. You know, we like to try to create autonomy and then you know, where you have to sort of do the extra work is trying to keep that alignment while also giving people space to operate. You talked about category creation. It's something we've discussed on the show a bunch. I'm curious, like, how do you view category creation design for Scoop? You know, it's, it, as I said before, I think, I think, well, first, I think category creation gets used a lot. And as a result, ironically, even within category creation, you need to re-clarify what are you actually talking about? In our particular case, you know, the way we, what we realized is, it kind of goes back to something we were saying before, we needed to help create a mental model for what this investable bucket was, right? Like, what am I buying? Am I buying a mode of transportation? Am I buying a commute platform? Am I buying a commute solution? And in many ways, what, we, what you have to do when you're category navigator, category creating is you've got to understand sort of where you want to be, right? What do you want a customer to describe you as? What is the existing set of mental models around investment and even tangential categories? And then obviously chart the path to close that gap. You know, in our case, in terms of designing the category or trying to establish what it was, 
almost every company does some, and this might sound counter to what I said before, which goes to the overall point around category clarity. Almost every company does something related to the commute, specifically through transit, right? You go find a random HR person, they're buying WageWorks or supporting WageWorks or some sort of mobility card in their local transit community, right? But that's what they thought about it as. It's, hey, I got to facilitate this government-required pre-tax set-aside thing. But now you're talking about, okay, I got to convince you that we're not talking about like set up an expense program. We're talking about holistically invest in this category of engagement for your employees, which is an area that not only you should start to invest in, but should become like a bucket of analysis and focus for you as an HR organization. And that's just, I know I've I've sort of gone long here, but uh, that's a lot of education for them to buy into in terms of what they're trying to create. But you've got to have clarity first as an organization of what you want a customer to see in in your eyes. Yeah. Do you feel like there are any particular challenges that you've come across either either from the category creation piece or or from your other campaigns about being maybe too early or or a little farther ahead than the market is ready? Yes. I think, you know, I don't know which environment is better or worse, but there's a difference between a really big difference between the sales mechanics and marketing mechanics of category creation versus selling into a very established and competitive category, right? And so in our case, what do we see? What are the downsides? Longer sales cycles, because you're really trying to educate and you really need them to understand. And oftentimes what we found is much more binary decision-making. And our decisions from customers aren't, yes, but how much or which provider? It's in or out. Because basically the one-two punch is get them to understand and appreciate the category and then get them to desire to invest in that category for their own company. And so what ends up happening is if you don't do that perfectly, you end up with a company that says, hey, I get it. We're not ready. Or, hey, I don't even get it. That's very different than if I were to build a Dropbox competitor, right? Sharing documents, that's important. I got to pay somebody for it, right? I, maybe I can do Google Drive. That's free. I'm part of G Suite. I can buy Dropbox. I can do Box. Give me the matrix. Give me the good price. Let me compare features. Bam, I'm going to make a purchasing decision. Category creation, totally different. I can count on one hand how many deals we've ever lost to another alternative right? We lose deals because people say, hey, yeah, we're not ready to make an investment in this area yet, or we don't need to make an investment in this area yet. And so it creates, a, it requires a lot of patience. And the upside is when you convince a big company that all of a sudden they need to invest in the commute, or not all of a sudden, but they need to make a real investment in their commute program, there's often pretty large windfall behind that in terms of the size and scope of what they will invest. Yeah, it, that's a great point. And I think you know, knowing who your competitors are is such a critical piece to marketing. And I think it's something that that is like why, you know, when we talk to a lot of top CMOs that they're so aligned with listening in on sales conversations and taking that feedback, because if you're not getting no's, you're getting not yet's. That's a very different signal than getting no's. You know what I mean? Yep. And arguably for sales, the not yet is worse. Yes. <laughs> but for marketing, it's like, wait a second, the not yet is, is fascinating. And for, for you all, I mean, you know, candidly, I really think that like we forget how new ride sharing really is. Yep. Like obviously it's also very old in, in a lot of ways. Yep. But it's so, so unbelievably new that we're just, you know, like the, the youngest generation that's coming into work right now, it's like, yeah, they're all familiar with it from from the moment that, you know, they practically don't buy cars and do all sorts of, you know, things like that. But you know, for older generations like us, where we're looking at, I'll just, I'd just rather take my car today. So it's still such just a new, new world. It is. 
and right on the money as far as the not yet versus the nose and actually how sales and marketing react to those, right? Because for sales, it's all right, cool. You're saying not yet, I'm gonna move on to somebody else. And marketing is like, wait, there's an opportunity here for us to close the gap, you know, to bring things a little bit full circle in this conversation. To me, this is actually one of the best leverage points you could get out of a well-formed growth organization. Because in funny way, like, you know, we don't have a CMO. And so I get to wear in duality my product hat and my marketing hat when I meet with sales, when I meet with customer success, and when I'm spending time with customers and actually get to digest that information sort of through one lens. Because in many ways, that's what you really, like, not yet, is a, actually a really important flag to product and marketing of where are we? What are we trying to prove? What do we need to build to support that? And the, the alignment and succinctness of that across the organization is, is key. And I think, frankly, a lot of companies see that happen in, in sort of in fragments versus in a holistic growth strategy. Any final thoughts on, you know, the changes with, with COVID happening and what the new normal will kind of look like? Yeah, you know, obviously this topic hits home for me at Scoop for compounding reasons. You know, the first is we're a mobility company. So getting people to the office is our business and people working from home and whether they'll go back is absolutely existential for us. It's also hit, hits me as a business owner, right? And as an as a entrepreneur who, who has spent just as much time on our, on our culture and our company as I have on, on the product. And what I'll say is this, I think what we believe at Scoop and what we're seeing in the data is that while people are pleasantly surprised by their ability to be productive at home, there are major gaps and deficits on the human social connectedness elements of what work is. I think what's going to get exposed, and I'm really just editorializing here, but I think what's going to get exposed through this work from home period is that we've really failed to innovate on what in-office productive culture should look like. From everything from the HBR article that I feel like gets sent around every year around the fact that like open floor plans are bad, but to work cultures and meetings and productivity and calendar management, there's so much about what it means to be in the office that we need to rein in and control to optimize. But the idea that a company is better off by everyone being distributed, never having in-person interactions, that people are going to want to stay at their jobs with no social interaction, I think it's short-sighted, right? I think it's very tech-forward. You know, one of the things I, I heard that I thought was a really smart take is we haven't even gotten through the new higher onboarding part of working from home, right? It's one thing to be like, hey, you're going to work from home with the exact same people that you used to go to the office with for the next three months. But now start adding some new people. Start dealing with turnover. Now you're working with people you've never even seen in person. You've never met them. You haven't seen their facial expressions. You haven't had a coffee chat with them in a real way. That stuff's going to hurt companies. It's going to hurt their ability to innovate and really be productive. And so I think two things are going to happen to summarize. One, it's going to be time for a long, hard look at what it means to create productivity in an office environment and to create a culture that engages people as people, but also helps them do good work versus a all productivity centric view of the world, which is the work from home view. And then the second is, it's just going to get more dynamic and more flexible. I think you're going to see more people say, hey, wait, I can work from home this day and still be productive. I can have three days in the office and two days at home or four days this week and two days next week. And that's going to become a much more dynamic style because work from home now becomes part of the toolkit. And that's where we see Scoop being valuable and, and, and critical, frankly, from a futurist perspective is we need to be the owner. We will be the owner of what does it mean to manage the way your people get to work when they need to get there where they are when they're not working, and how overall you have a picture of what it means to get people plugged in to their work environment, to their workspace, to the office, and do that in a way that can be just as meaningful and empowering as Scoop was before COVID. 
Let's get into our lightning round. These questions, fast and easy, just like marketing with Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more about how Salesforce brings marketing and engagement together. Salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more. Lightning round questions. John, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what habit or hobby have you picked up in shelter in place? Uh, we got a sous vide. And so it, it's an expansion of cooking, but I've learned how to sous vide different kind of meats and, and save some time cooking. I got two little kids at home. So not having to slave over a stove is, is, a, is a good win. What TV show, podcast, or book are you binging right now? At this moment, we, are, we just finished Normal People, which is a show on, on Hulu that is a little melancholy, but it's, it's, it's really nicely done. Do you have a hidden talent or passion? Not so hidden, but I am a basketball fanatic. Uh, I always have been a huge, huge basketball fan. And so uh, I would say the biggest milestone on my calendar in the coming months is uh, when games start in the bubble down in Orlando at the end of July. Best advice for a first-time head of growth? Best advice for a first-time head of growth would be build a team of functional experts where your expertise is the harmony across them. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? I don't get asked often enough. You know, interestingly enough, I don't get asked often enough what it's like being a parent and a co-founder at the same time. I think that I'll keep it lightning but I think we tend to let those conversations fall too much across um, standard diversity conversations as opposed to broadening them out and showing a little bit more humanity of different types of people who have different types of co-founding environments or founding environments at home. Yeah, that's a great one. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Any, uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I appreciate you following up. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I think that male founders should be held just as responsible for what it means to be good parents at the same time. And that we should be way more consistent with the way that we think about both accommodating and on the parenting side, holding accountable, you know, different parents of different, you know, different gender or different, um, you know, child relationships. And, and I think that that consistency is critical if you want to create a more egalitarian environment for, for different founders, for female founders and male founders, adopted parents and natural born children. And not just think about, you know, uh, oh, he's a guy. It's it's fine. Like that's that's an it's an unacceptable perspective. If we're going to build more more equality, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And those are great great final thoughts here. Thanks so much for joining, John. It's been awesome having you on the show. Any uh, anything else? Anything to plug? Everybody should check out takescoop.com. Yeah, thanks, Ian. It's been great talking to you. Definitely check out takescoop.com. Uh, you can you can send me a, an email if you have questions and follow-ups. That's my plug. It's uh, always interested in, in getting feedback and learning from people. My email is john at takescoop.com. And otherwise, Ian, thanks for doing this. Good luck on, on your new podcast on Demand Gen. I'm excited to check it out and share it with our team and really enjoy talking to you. Yeah, lots of stuff going on as always. Thanks again. Take care. Bye-bye. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing.
you have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.